How many of you were at the parade yesterday? In Frisco. I should say the one in Frisco. Did you see the DCC Jeep Club? Thanks, Bob and Ruth Petrick, for making that happen. That was really a lot of fun as well. Okay, before we, uh, before we look at Genesis, I would like to take a moment. Um, as many of you know, we had a, we had a tragedy this week, the uh, Flight for Life helicopter that um, some of you perhaps have had to use in the past. I know for sure some of you have crashed uh, by the hospital and the pilot, Patrick Mahaney, died, and the other two crew members are in, uh, one's in critical condition, one is in serious condition. And I think we should just stop and pause for a moment out of respect, just a moment of silence, and I'd like to lead us in a prayer. Lots of, lots of people are affected by this. Uh, the people at the hospital, you know, they don't do first responder kind of stuff. And, um, and there's, just, there's just a lot of people, the families, and so can we just take a moment? And remember and be grateful for this team that does what they do. Father, we are grateful, Lord, that um, we even have the ability to have a flight for life helicopter and a team and a crew. I've never used them, Lord. Uh, but I have heard many stories, and I am grateful for them. I, I pray, Lord, for the family of the pilot. I pray that you would be a comfort to them during this time. And, Lord, the two other crew members who are uh, in uh, dire straits right now, I pray that you would be merciful to them and their families as well. And, Lord, all the people that were involved in that and that have been affected by it, Lord, it's far beyond my awareness of who that is. I just know that this kind of tragedy in our in our county is uh, tremendous. It's very, very large and powerful to us. So I pray that you would help them. Lord, I continue to lift up our country and uh, pray that you would help us as a church know how uh, to love people even better, especially with some of the divisions that are occurring. And then, Father, I continue to lift up our brothers and sisters in Nepal, many of whom are just struggling for just their basic survival. Help them, Lord, be with them and show them grace as well. We are grateful, Lord, to be called your children, to be called a people of the one true God. Thank you for your great love for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. January 9th, 1984. It's an important day in my life. Some of you know the story. You've heard it. It was snowing outside. Um, I remember that distinctly. I, you don't usually remember what happens on any particular day, but on this day I remember because that was the day my first wife died. And... Um, Although it was expected, I don't know how you ever expect it, the people around me expected it, but I didn't, and uh, I was with her when she died, and I was holding her hands, uh, I remember looking out the window, and it was snowing, that's how I remember it, and, um, and I was with her when her heart stopped, and um, I had a very interesting clash of emotions at that one second, which I'll never forget, I'm sure. One was just the overwhelming sorrow and the loneliness, which many of you have experienced. I get that. Um, the tears, the wondering what's going to happen next, not sure what to do, where to go. But there was, down underneath that, there was something else that happened. There was a, um, 
there was a sense in which I realized I believe. I truly believe. And I realized whoever this God is, I don't think I understood him very well at that moment in time because how could I pray for years, months, days, hours, all the way down to minutes? And he said no. But I realized at that one second when he said no that I actually do believe. My faith was tested and I came out the other side and I believed. But I also realized I didn't know him very well. And that began a journey, 32 years now almost, where I have sought to understand him. It's led me through a variety of academic degrees and experiences around the world in leadership, Christian leadership, talking to people from continents, different continents, trying to understand and make sense of him. But I realized in that one second, I believed. We often describe the testing of our faith in negative, negative ways. It's not always negative. Uh, sometimes our faith is tested in very positive ways. You might have a financial windfall, for instance. Maybe you come from a wealthy family. That would be more of a positive um, from a cultural perspective. But it's just as much of a test. How real is your faith? And that's the question we're going to wrestle with today. How real is your faith? Every one of you, how real is it? Because it's very important that your faith grow to where it become genuine, to where it becomes real. If you've not had your faith tested, watch out, because I think it'll come. And I think that's good, and it's healthy that it comes. How do you know if your faith is real if it's never tested? How do you know? I think of, uh, I was in the Navy, I wasn't in the Army or the Marines, but I think about the metaphor of a, a young soldier going into combat. They hope to be found courageous. And they don't want to be found cowardly. But how would you know? You won't. Not until a bullet comes your way. That's when you'll find out. The only way to know that your faith is real is to have it tested. There is no shortcut. There is no other way. That's when you'll find out. I want to read a story. We're in a series, God, the God who engages. We called it that because it's very common today for us to understand God as somewhat distant. He's not very involved with us, especially when we look at tragedies that happen around us. It's hard for us to make sense of how could God be engaged with us in the midst of tragedy, but yet he is. God is very engaged. So all summer long, we're dealing with this. Last week, we looked at uh, Genesis 18 and 20 to 21, the birth of Isaac. God remembers his promise, and he steps in. So today, we're going to look at a God who does not mind testing us. He doesn't mind it at all. It's for our benefit, and we're going to look in Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. That's how it starts out. He tested Abraham. What did he say? Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son. Now, I want you to notice how this verse starts a little broad and moves down and focus every, every step of the way. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. 
So early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place that God had told him about. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So right off the bat, we know his son is probably a teenager. He's able to carry the wood. And they started up the mountain. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the, wire, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a good question. Abraham, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. Why would God do that? Does that bother your sense of ethics? Does that represent the redemptive God that we know today? Kill your son? I thought childhood sacrifice was not allowed under the law. And yet that's what God asked of Abraham. As you can imagine, lots and lots of discussion in all of the scholarly journals and books trying to figure out and make sense of this passage. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think about it, okay? I may be wrong, but I'll tell you what I think. One of the things I've observed in Scripture is that um, whenever God speaks or acts, he does so to bring about a sense of redemption. And what I mean by that to fix something that's broken. And you go back into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is just replete with passages that do not make any sense to us. But if we could go back and we could look at what was happening at the time, we would see how God is acting. That's what we would see. My take on this is that this is before the law. And we already know that there were many nations who practiced childhood sacrifice. And so when God spoke to Abraham and said, sacrifice your son, Abraham hadn't seen the law, hadn't even been given yet. That came 500 years later. And so God spoke to him in language that he might have understood. It might have been common in his culture. Don't We don't know for sure, but we do know that many of the surrounding nations did practice childhood sacrifice. I don't think the real test of Abraham was in sacrificing his son. I think the real test with Abraham was that God would raise him from the dead if he did. That was the real test. Because God had promised him, through Isaac, I will bless all the nations, through your son Isaac. So the real test for Abraham, at his point in history, way back here, with the sense of ethics that he had, was that God would raise him from the dead. I don't know if this would, ha would have happened or not. We have no account of it. But could it be that Abraham maybe looked around at his friends and relatives and said, you killed your children, look, nothing happened. What should happen when I take my son's life? I believe in a God who will fulfill his promise. 
when you look much, much later in the New Testament, so now we're down at the other end of the Bible, in Hebrews, the great chapter on faith, verse, chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, the real test for Abraham was whether or not God would fulfill his promise. To us today, it would be, the test would be, you want me to do what? I'm not sure that was the test for Abraham. The test for Abraham was, okay, God, I look forward to seeing how you're going to fulfill your promise. So Hebrews said, in effect, he raised him, he received his son back from the dead. That's a test, isn't it? That's a real test. Especially in a time period when we, he didn't have the Bible, hadn't been written yet. That didn't come until 500 years later. All he had was these spoken words from God. That's all he had. That's a strong faith that God says perhaps several years earlier, I'm going to bless you through your son Isaac, and then several years later, now kill him. That's a test. It's a test, quite honestly, that we don't, it doesn't make sense to us in our world today because none of those, none of that, nothing about that story fits our current sense of ethics. You go to jail for that, rightfully so. <laughs> you called murder, but not then. Not then. Later on, after then God put in the law, you can't offer children. You can't do that. Now, they did it. Israelite con the Israelites continued to do it at certain times. We have some stories in the Bible where they did. And it, was, and it was a tragedy. It was horrible. One of the most vile, horrible things the world has seen to offer your child. But God had said, don't do it. Don't do it. So the key is that he spoke to Abraham in language that Abraham understood. He gave him a test that was actually a test for Abraham. By the way, you're, you should be tested, every one of you. That's how you'll know that your faith is real. I didn't read the rest of the chapter in Genesis, but if I had, you would see that God reiterated the promise. Because of your faithfulness, I'm going to bless you. All right, now we're going to jump even further into the New Testament, and we're going to look at the book of James just for a second. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but they have no deeds, can such a faith save them? The answer to this implied question is very clear, no. How real is your faith? If your faith is real, you will see it, and so will we. If your faith is real, we'll see it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? No, they can't. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. He gives a very absurd example here to illustrate the point. So you come across somebody that doesn't have any clothes or food at all. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? No good at all. That's a dead faith. 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, well, I have deeds. Really, he says, really? Show me your faith without deeds. Let me see it. I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that. It's a strong passage. This is a troubling text. This is a hard one. You believe? So what? Even the demons believe. It didn't help them. Simple belief is not enough. If your faith is genuine and it's real, it'll be displayed. You will live it out. It'll be expressed in the way you live your life. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is dead or useless? Do you want evidence? Okay. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, in Abraham's case, that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made corrupt by what he did. Sorry, Jude, there goes all your music. If you want to run up and grab it, go for it. So in Abraham's case, you can see that his faith and his actions, they were working together, and his faith was made complete. His faith was made complete by what he did. You can believe you're courageous, but until the bullet comes, you won't know. That's what completes that process. When the bullet comes and you stand your ground, then you'll know. That's what happened with Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was God's friend. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Now I'm not going to get into the whole question of justification and salvation. That's a whole nother topic. But in this particular case, James is arguing very powerfully the faith that saved you, if it's genuine, you will see it lived out. You will see it expressed. You can't get away from it. How real is your faith? How real is it? I can't answer the question for you. You have to answer it. I tell my church all the time, for those of you that are visitors, that when we take the offer, you'll hear me say it today, actually, that I'm very grateful to a church that's generous. Without a generous church, we couldn't do what we're doing right now. We'd be back in the building. We couldn't have had a VBS three weeks ago that had 350 kids. We couldn't do any of that. But because we have a generous church, we can do that. Now, what I don't know is if you're actually generous or not. Only you know if you're generous. You have to look in the mirror and make that decision. I can't make it for you. On this side of the eyeballs, you look generous. But on your side, maybe you're actually greedy. You make that call. I'm not going to make it for you. I don't know. How real is your faith? Only you can answer the question, every one of you. If you go back to verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and by the way, here's a royal law, he quotes it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep that law, you're doing right. That's the royal law. That's how you sum up the law. The Pharisees could argue all day long, we keep the law, all Jesus had to do was point to a poor person. That's all he had to do. One day in my church, before I came up here, the pastor was preaching on uh, uh, Acts 3 and 4, 
where Peter and John healed a man at the gate called Beautiful at the temple. And he said, we don't know what the gate called Beautiful was or where it was, and I don't really see the point of that detail. So if you want to know, ask Dr. Howard. He'll give you all the academic stuff of it. And I'm going, oh, boy. Okay. So, of course, people came up to me afterwards and said, is that an important detail? And I said, I think it's the detail that unlocks the whole passage. Because we may not know exactly which gate it was, but the temple was God's house. I could understand it if there's a poor person a thousand miles away, but the emphasis that it's at the gate called beautiful means it's sitting, he's sitting right on the doorstep. You see the hypocrisy? Right on the doorstep of God's house, there's a poor person begging. And if they were really fulfilling the law, that person wouldn't have been there. I could see it a thousand miles away, but I can't see it here. When the world looks at us as a church, do they see our love? Last week I shared with you, and I stunned a bunch of you, that I had wrestled, struggled all week since the Supreme Court decision, not because of the Supreme Court's decision. That's the Lord's business to take care of the courts, not my business. I have no idea how to do that. I'll let the Lord worry about the government. What has made me struggle and continue to struggle is the, the way the battle lines are being drawn after that decision, especially regarding Christians. Where, and I just keep asking myself this question, where did we become known for our positions and our platforms rather than our love for people? We lost that somewhere in there. That's the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep that, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Or if you move up to the beginning of the chapter, my brothers and sisters believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Or believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you, you sit here, the honored position. But to the poor person, you stand over there or you sit on the floor. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, you who are rich. He's not saying rich can't go to heaven. He's not saying that. If you're one of the wealthy ones here, I praise God for that. That's a blessing from the Lord. That's a blessing if you're one of the ones here who's rich. Don't at all feel guilty about being rich. Don't confuse ri wealth and greed. Wealth is a statement of the Lord's blessing. Greed is a statement of the heart. I can't tell if you're generous. If you're a wealthy person or a poor person, you have to look in the mirror and figure that out yourself. But that's the example he uses to show that their faith was not real. It was not genuine. It was a dead faith. Because if their faith was alive, they would have expressed it in caring for the poor. Just like the beggar sitting at the gate called Beautiful, God's doorstep. There was no cause for that. None whatsoever. And if we as a church are the spiritual temple, doesn't it make sense that we should have no poor sitting at our doorsteps? 
Our faith should be that real. Now that's the example that James uses. How's your faith? How real is it? I can't answer the question for you. I can only answer my own. Is your faith a dead faith? If you've not been tested, when the time comes, will you be found courageous? Will you stand up to the test? By the way, God tests your faith not for his benefit. He knows the heart. He tests your faith for your benefit. You're the one that walks away with a sense of yes. Yes. So that day when Judy died, my first wife, I told this story once before a couple years ago in church, and I didn't fail to mention the fact that I'm happily married. I've been married just past 30 years. My wife, Nancy, is right here. <laughs> but when my first wife died, yes. I do like to remind her from time to time it's a good thing she married such a great guy 30 years ago. <laughs> I won't tell you all of the various retorts that she has to that, <laughs> but there's a lot, <laughs> rightfully so. But when she died, I felt that sorrow. Of course I would feel the sorrow. I'm human. But I also felt that sense of, huh, huh. God just took away the most important person to me, and I still love him. My faith is real. How's your faith? Is it being lived out? Father, thank you. Thank you for being gentle with us when we need you to be gentle. Thanks for being courageous with us when you need us to be courageous. Gracious when we need grace. And by the way, Lord, that's such an elusive idea to us. Sometimes we can look back and we can see the grace, but man, is it hard to figure out what that really looks like. Thank you for being merciful when we need mercy. Thank you for testing our faith to help us see that we actually genuinely do love you. Thank you. And Father, there are many people, again, to circle back to where we started. There are many people right now whose faith is being tested, Lord, because of what happened with the helicopter crash. God, be merciful to them. Help them, please. Show them your mercy. Show them your love. Show them your grace. And Lord, now as we take our offering, I would like to say to you, I'm very grateful for these people here. They're the ones that make it possible for us to do what we do in our county. And I love them dearly. So thank you for their generosity. Bless them. If one of them is not really being generous, then just gently prod them. Just tap them on the shoulder. Help them to see that uh, they will be more blessed if they are. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen. As the ushers take the uh, offering, thanks for your generosity. If you'd like your offering to go to our Benevolence Fund, just write it on there. There's instructions, I think, in the bulletin. It's right on our Benevolence Fund, and we'll make sure it gets there.
would like to uh, serve us communion or pray, come on down and get us ready for communion. So come on down and start getting everything ready. As uh, For those of you that are visitors, we close out our church service each week by celebrating together as a faith community our confession that we believe in Jesus as Lord. We believe in that. It's on the motto on our sign back at our church. And um, lots of ways you can look at the life of Jesus. One of the ways you can look at the life of Jesus is that everything he did his entire life was a big test. It was a big test. All the way from the temptation at the beginning of his life where he was tempted to stir, turn the stones into bread to the very end of his life when the centurion said, you're God, come on down. You can do that. Come on down. So his entire life was a test of his faith. Aren't we grateful that he, that he fulfilled his calling? He lived out his faith in real ways. What's the last thing he said? It is finished. I could just picture him going, I did it. It's finished. It's finished. We're going to invite you down to take communion in just a second. And uh, while you're up here, if you want to pray with us, I'm here. Anybody that's not holding a tray on either side, come stand and pray with us and help and uh, tell us what you want. We can ask God for requests that you have. We can thank God for things that he's done. We can pray for others. We love to pray. When Jesus said, or when Paul said, every time we take this, we remember his death. That's what we did in the beginning when we remembered the death of the helicopter pilot. So can we just have a short time of silence? where we remember the Lord's death. Let's just have a moment of silence. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for withstanding all the tests and the trials that came your way and standing firm so that we can live again. Amen. Come down and enjoy communion.
as you go out this week, the other side of it is don't be afraid of the testing when it comes. Don't be afraid of it. Because you know what the Lord also promises? He promises strength when that time comes. I know that grace is elusive to us. We need it. But it's hard for us to quantify it. We need it. It's just hard to figure out what it is. But the Lord promises strength and courage when the time comes. You will bear up. So when the testing comes, don't be afraid of it. Step into it. You'll be glad you did. Have a great week. Go in peace. Say hello to somebody next to you. Might sound crazy what I'm about to say. Since Angie's here, you can take a break. Have my heart up
<laughs> All right, we're going to do a, a song uh, called Juntos as you're leaving as well. It's a Spanish song, and it actually means uh, the importance of being together. So this is about community. It's about what America is all about, the melting pot.